Okay, now that worked. Yes, Plum Radio Monday Night Live. Hello, hello. And we'll add Joey to the show. Am I on? The internet denied you for oh, a hot minute. <gasps> Plum Radio left. Oh no. Is the shadow banning? Is it not? Hey! Ah, uh, fucking computer. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Welcome to the wild internet. <sighs> fucking computer. <laughs> it's the computer. Internet. <laughs> internet would be great if it ever worked, but it's because it big Facebook is watching big Plum Radio. <laughs> <laughs> the tubes are clogged again. Uh. Hey everyone, <laughs> welcome to our Monday live show of Plum Radio. Today is October 5th, 2020. This is episode 24 of Plum Radio. We are in Libra season. October surprise. October surprise. <laughs> Mercury is not in retrograde. Make sure you send this Instagram live to at least one of your friends. because We Radio... are in Saturn's revenge though. <laughs> Plum Radio is race therapy, but make it a podcast. I'm Dolly Lee, and here's my co-host, and I'm Joey, Yang. Joey Yang. You know, our show is now a Monday Live format, and the full episode of our show drops every Wednesday. We've got a great guest this Wednesday. We'll be hearing from J.S. Tan, who is a writer and recovering tech worker, just like Joey. And he's going to be talking to us about tech, the splinternet, and existing in these two worlds. JS grew up in Beijing and worked in the U.S. for Microsoft. JS wrote a great article in Foreign Policy called Big Tech Embraces New Cold War Nationalism. The new Cold War, it's online. We talked about the splinternet, which is how... I love that term. How Chinese and U.S. internets are diverging. But at the same time, Chinese tech and U.S. tech have learned a lot from each other whether it's surveillance to censorship to the explosion of the gig economy. So we talked to JS about what consumers and tech workers can learn from each other on both sides of the ocean. We also talked about the anti-996 movement in Chinese tech and uh, a bunch of other great stuff. Yes. So our interview with JS is coming up shortly. So on to the rest of our show. Happy belated Harvest Moon. Did you have mooncakes? Yeah. Yes. Yes, we did. We had some mooncakes. Uh, did you see the Harvest Moon? It was huge. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It was so gorgeous. I mean, full moon's the day of reunion, the Harvest Moon every year. It's Chinese Thanksgiving. You're supposed to be gathering with your family and with your friends and reuniting. We actually hosted our monthly late night Zoom call that we do just for our Plum Radio Patreon members. This is something we do once a month to get to know everyone. This past week, we discussed everything, you know, whatever's on your mind, your requests for the show, your feedback. But of course, a big one was this week's debate and the upcoming elections. Uh-huh. And we were talking about how much of a train wreck the debate was. <laughs> and so uh, we figured for our yeah, next yes, yes. Patreon late night subscribers show, we would do a movie screening of a movie about an actual train wreck, Bong Joon-ho's movie Snowpiercer, which is <laughs> yeah it's about a train wreck well we'll leave it at that for now uh, <laughs> i haven't seen snowpiercer so i'm definitely looking forward to oh that. it's so good it's on netflix and there's now a tnt series based on the movie featuring david diggs and some other folks i haven't seen the tnt tv series yet but yeah it's a, it's a great story hmm. and uh it's about a revolution Okay, I'll actually leave it at that. But <laughs> <laughs> So uh, drop by our next late night show. We do screenings. We do other fun stuff. We screened the first vote film a couple weeks ago for our Patreon subscribers. So big thank you to Sean for supporting us on Patreon. Yes, and Sean. And we're now offering annual memberships. So just $50. Save 10 bucks for over the monthly rate. And it also helps us save on credit card fees as well. Also about 10% on our credit card fees, which is huge for us. So if you're already a subscriber, get a subscription for a friend. Keep it yes. Going. Send hearts if you're already a Plum Radio Patreon subscriber. You can go to patreon.com slash Plum Radio. I personally kind of hate being charged like $5 a month, so I'm all for the monthly annual subscription. And it's only $50. And, you know, we definitely work really hard to make sure we get awesome guests on the show and include you guys as a part of this endeavor. Speaking of our conversations with our Patreon members last week, the debates, the debates 
R.I.P. This Nation. Oh, oh my goodness. Rip me. <laughs> rip. rip. I mean, this this goes rip exactly me. actually into Sadat's question or Sadat's comment here on Instagram. Why is wearing a mask being so politicized in the U.S.? What is the deal here, right? Like Sadat, that's a great question. Great question. Excellent. <laughs> most excellent question. You know, you know, at the debate, R.I.P. Dignity, R.I.P. This Nation. At the debate, Donald Trump and that first family all decided to not wear masks while everyone else did. Trump and Biden didn't have to wear masks, but literally his family took off their masks. Medical professionals asked them to put theirs on or they even offered them a mask and they were just like, no. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, Melania and Trump both get COVID. And so did 11 people who were working the debate in Cleveland last week. So spare a thought for them and spare exactly. a thought for the White House staff that tested positive today as well. Not the actual like politicians, but the grounds crew and the support staff at the White House, people who actually have to work for a living. A spare a thought for them as well. We really, I mean, I really don't understand why the masks are so politicized, but I think it just has to do with our incredibly valuable American individualism that will hold to our deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths in place of thinking of the collective good and health of all peoples. This president just doesn't want to wear a mask. He, didn't, he yeah. could have worn a mask very early on, but he didn't. You know, part of it too is that New York Times report on his tax returns really made it clear for a lot of folks, but for him to acknowledge that the pandemic was a real thing and actually shut down the country, which would would have meant that all of his businesses, which he still owns and is invested in, which are all in the tourism and hospitality industry, they would have had to close and he would have gone bankrupt and he already owes hundreds of millions of dollars. So He's already gone uh, bankrupt before. He's yeah. very familiar with bankruptcy. <laughs> so that's why he's not wearing oh, a mask. What if, what if there's no golf? What? <laughs> so terrible. Who will wash my balls if there's no golf? Who will, who will wash my balls? <laughs> Rugged individualism is correct. Rugged to the extent uh-huh. that everyone else is put in danger. Yeah. So Socialism for the more rich. More debates coming up. Healthcare for the rich. <laughs> Healthcare for the rich. We've got the VP debates coming up this Wednesday. I really would love to see Kamala Harris drag Mike Pence by his little silver tufts the same way she dragged <laughs> Joe Biden all throughout the Democratic <laughs> debates. I mean, Democratic Party, if you're looking for a good debater who can actually take down Donald Trump, who is someone who's very good at repeating his points, why didn't you guys just pick Kamala instead? Why did you not? Why Biden, someone who just doesn't want to be up there, is clearly not winning the debate. And it's God, it's just, I, I can't even, every time I talk about it, I'm just like, oh, so well, and the, the debate should end at the moment where either one of them strings together a complete sentence. I feel, I feel like that should just be the criteria for it. Somebody also needs to tell the vice president, by the way, that this means that he'll have to be in the same room as a woman for over an hour. Uh, I think it goes Wild against stuff. his religious beliefs. So somebody please needs to tell him or at least like put a barrier up. Uh, I mean, I have a, I have a solution. I think she should Give begin the debate solution. by throwing him in jail. She can't, she won't throw him in jail because he's not a black or a brown man. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Hey, and, and by the way, by the way, I know abolition means that we're moving past jails, but we can make a jail just for him. You know, it'd just be a horny jail, just one horny, horny jail. jail just for Mike Pence. So he can go into it because he's too horny. You can call it a horny meditation. but god unfortunately Uh, you know the president is now out of the hospital and he's recovered and put out this tweet that he said (laughs) don't let covid dominate your life this is exactly what everyone predicted he's downplaying what covid actually means how it's going to affect people folks you will not have someone monitoring your blood and oxygen levels every 10 minutes the way the president does please do not take his word like People need to take COVID seriously because we don't have the incredible health care that the president of the United States does. He's just trying to be the big, strong man. There's a there's a video of him just now getting off of Marine One, the helicopter off of the medical center. And he's coming off like trying to like not cough, like trying so hard. Oh, my he's God. He's like, he like oh saluted God. the chopper and he's like. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll oh. see. By the time LG this podcast drops on Wednesday, things. who knows if things will, who knows, who knows what will have happened by then. LG in here with the hot takes. She asks, will Joe Biden make it through a home debate without needing a nap? He may be napping in between. And will Mike Pence need to change his diaper after, de- after debating Kamala Harris? He's probably already wearing multiple diapers. <laughs> 
So you guys, if you're going to be watching the debate, we'll be watching the debate as well. Make sure you follow along in the messages. Unfortunately, make sure we'll you send us stories. I know. We'll just painfully be watching. So <laughs> drop some whole emojis if you're watching along with us and laughing to not cry, truly. So yes, this week, you know, every week we do a listener mailbag, making sure that we get to some of y'all's questions. You can email us actually at hi at plumradio.com if you want to get your question read on the show, or you can DM us, slide straight into those DMs and make sure you hit us up at listen to Plum Radio on Instagram. LG <laughs> says she'll be planking for the entire debate. So will we. <laughs> Plank so we don't die. Planking so, yes, to keep from crying. Planking to keep from crying. <laughs> so this week's listener mailbag comes from Megan. So a bunch of y'all wrote in about the new film Minari, which I am personally very excited about. And there's a question around good and bad representation. For folks who are hearing about Minari for the first time, it's actually a new film, an A24 film about a Korean family that moves to rural America and tries to start their life anew. And the trailer is beautiful. If you haven't seen it, mm -hmm. definitely recommend you watching it. So Megan writes in and says that, you know, even people who are so bitter about representation are praising the shit out of this movie. For me, it makes me think about a future where a well-made movie about Asian Americans isn't super rare, but a normal part of American culture. Uh, Megan also writes that she's thinking about the ideas of good and bad representation and how the Asian American hive mind will classify things in these two categories. So some people thought Indian matchmaking was bad. Crazy rich Asians, bad. Minari, good. For the record, we love Indian matchmaking on Plum Radio. Yeah. We're a team aparna. We We're are a team, team aparna. Matchmaking. I think it's a show that actually offers a different perspective about love and relationships and puts it in the perspective of a collective mindset, you know, where a marriage is a union of communities rather than individuals. And I think we are so accustomed to the American concept of marriage where it's necessarily between individuals and no one else exists outside of your marriage, which is not true. And for me, it's like, it's about like how these movies portray us, right? I watched Crazy Rich Asians in theaters opening weekend. I paid to watch that movie. Okay. Listen, I paid for it. Okay. We all did. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, not everyone, but you know, so like, but like my first, my frustration around a movie like Crazy Rich Asians is like, whose life is this? Like, who are we representing exactly? Right? Like a lot of my family's from Singapore and like their lives look nothing like the lives of the characters in the movie on the screens like i mean there are moments like yeah i mean people speaking malay people speaking hokkien like languages that don't really make it to the big screen uh that often but like a movie like that one like so just the title alone like crazy rich asians i mean it's like reinforces a bunch of the worst stereotypes about us right and it does so in the minds of a lot of the white audiences right who will look at a film like that and scream like oh representation matters right so like i think the stereotypes really carry a lot of weight uh, and especially when some of those movies get you know, a lot of attention, then that's how people will see us for better and for worse. It sends a message about which of our stories are acceptable to be told. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what it shows, especially with something like Crazy Rich Asians, is there are steps to making a film like Minari, right? Like I often compare Crazy Rich Asians to the film, 1999 film, The Best Man, which is one of the first films that you see with an all black cast. And honestly, the storylines are quite similar. It's a wedding, an upcoming wedding. There's strife between the families and the couples. They overcome it all because of love and family and joy, right? And through The Best Man, you get Tay Diggs, you get Terrence Howard, right? People who eventually have long lasting careers and really open doors for a lot of um, Black American actors and actresses and filmmakers. We all have to start from somewhere. And, and Asian Americans also being the most self-critical of our own work, right? What do we get to celebrate? What don't we get to celebrate? But like I've said on previous shows, I believe we deserve entertainment as much as we deserve enlightenment. That's why, yes, it's okay to enjoy Crazy Rich Asians, but it's also really okay to be super excited for Minari. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's why a movie like Minari is so exciting because it's like we get, finally now we get to watch stories, stories that might break someone's expectations, something that might go around someone's existing stereotypes, ones we don't expect to see it and hear, you know, stories about how we might find ourselves gasp on the margins of society, but find a way for ourselves anyway. And Megan, in what she wrote to us, also brings up the example of Joy Luck Club. So she writes, in my opinion, Amy Tan, who's the author of the Joy Luck Club, she's not the filmmaker, was unfairly criticized for perpetuating stereotypes. She was actually writing the story of her mother and her family members during China's civil war. 
Yet for years, people blamed Amy Tan instead of the system that doesn't allow or publish or film more Asian American stories. Yes, it's always easier to blame people than to blame the system, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And definitely like Amy Tan did not set out to represent all of Asian America when she wrote the book, The Joy Luck Club. But but I think we really got to be careful with how these movies enter the American consciousness because, you know, for better or for worse, Joy Luck Club was the biggest major motion picture about an Asian family, probably until Crazy Rich Asians, right? And that was some 20 odd years. And for better or for worse, that's the impression that people get left with, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and in that movie, we were, you know, wealthy coastal model minorities. And that's, and those stereotypes have real effects on our communities years down the road. But what that film also did was that it had a full cast of very powerful Asian women with a strong sisterhood, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and they absolutely. were defying patriarchy in so many different ways. And in fact, they even there's even like a white man and Asian woman couple and they dig at that relationship. You know, they make fun of it, which is something mm-hmm. that, you know, blast that shit, call it out. And you don't see that in Crazy Rich Asians. Right. And let's not mm-hmm. forget that, you know, there were in between Crazy Rich Asians, incredible films like Saving Face from Alice Wu, one of our guests from one of our earlier episodes, episode five. And that shit was radical. That was a story that opened in a similar way to Joy Luck Club, where you're at this like Chinese banquet. And it turns out that it's a story about a young Chinese American doctor who's coming out of the closet, who falls in love with someone who the family does not expect her to fall in love with. So I think there are so many steps in between for us to get Minari, right? And watching the trailer of Minari, I was really moved and really excited because it reminded me also so much of the stories, the documentary stories I worked on about the South, about Asian communities in the South. There are a lot of untold stories. And I think our Asian community, we know that. People of color know our stories are complex, multifaceted, and diverse, right? Does Hollywood necessarily know? I don't think so, right? Because their only blueprints right now are Joy Luck Club, Crazy Rich Asians, which in some ways mm-hmm. are just kind of variations of each other with slightly different budgets. But now, you know, Minari is a sign that things may change, right? And there's a reason why people still love the Mississippi Delta Chinese stories so, so much, because there are these stories in the South, and we have yet to dig deeper to go beyond the cliches and the tropes that Hollywood puts out there and assigns to us, right? But it's it's on us, really, media makers, to put more of these stories out there to show that, hey, our community exists. We know they exist. And it's time for you to acknowledge that we exist as well. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of times the nuance of these films that make it like it's lost in the larger conversation, right? So on one hand, you know, we really need the Joy Luck Clubs and the Crazy Rich Asians to open the doors. And I think as as the director of Crazy Rich Asians said, you know, hopefully this is kicking in the door and maybe we're starting to see that. Yeah. I'm hoping that's what we're seeing. Yeah, Minari looks like a huge kick in the face for everyone, and I'm I'm so excited for it. So yeah. definitely looking forward to that. Cannot wait to see when it comes out. So it's time to get to our weekly segment, the whole and blessing segment. of the week. And uh, well, the whole the whole got a little bigger this week, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and not just the hole that the president coughs out of. Oh, my God. Our hole this week comes from the biggest state with the biggest hole. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, he has ordered ballot drop off locations to be closed all over the state of Texas. He wants only one drop off location per county. Okay, For perspective, Harris County, which is Houston, that's home to over four million people. Over two point four million people are registered voters in Harris County, which makes Houston larger than the state of Rhode Island. And there's supposed to be only one place to drop off your vote. That would be the same thing for Austin. How is this not voter suppression? It is. It is voter suppression. It's literally voter suppression. 100%. But it's how? literally voter suppression. It's, <laughs> Texas is applying it, voter suppression off. in the same way. <laughs> mask off. No, mask on, everybody, mask on. <laughs> Texas is going down the same route that they did with abortion clinics, right? Where now it's really hard to get an abortion in Texas. You have to drive out to really far off places to even get an abortion. All places that perform abortions, even early stage abortions, you have to be a surgical center, right? So this is vote, voter suppression and suppression of women's health care all going down the same route in Texas. So the solution, sue his ass. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Abbott can suck it. 
So there are two separate Sue federal him. lawsuits filed on behalf of the older voters, groups like the Texas and National Leagues of United Latin American Citizens and the League of Women Voters of Texas and the Texas Alliance for Retired Americans uh, asked that the federal courts overturned the governor's order. Uh, shout out to the Texas Alliance for Retired Americans. <laughs> we respect retirement and we respect our retired people. <laughs> I'd like to retire. Can I retire? I mean, <laughs> you are retired. <laughs> I wish. I wish. But you know what? Next I'm, week I'm, is I'm when early retired, voting but... early voting starts next week in Texas. So hopefully this will move through the court quickly because there's just no way. It makes no sense. How can you force cities like Houston, Dallas, Austin to only have one place to drop off your ballot? Really makes no sense. How? Uh, well, if you have the power, that's how. <laughs> so in the hole, giant hole for Greg Abbott, giant, giant hole. Yeah. My hole of the week is that the president got better. I was, I gotta be honest, happen. like I was watching the debate on Tuesday and I was like, he's so upset afterwards. And I'm like, not because I expected more, but because it was even worse than I imagined. And I woke up to the news on Friday and I was so happy like my mood like brightened the rest of the evening and like that whole weekend i was just like riding on a cloud i was like wow the president might die like this is incredible <laughs> like i never thought i would say this like as a as a person who's like born in america and it was like isn't american i just like i never thought like i ah, like i really hope the president dies but we have a, a comment in here actually about um what can local texans do about voter suppression call your local elected officials like this is clearly something that's at a very local level and governor abbott has so much power call your local elected officials email them let them know that this is not okay let them know that it's not safe it's not safe to only have one location to drop off your ballot which takes us of course to a blessing because we need we to bless, bless this <laughs> cursed cursed bless. show we must we bless, bless the show so that js's <laughs> uh, uh, interview will be blessed <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so Joey, I please I, give us our blessing for the week. So so before I get to what I'd written for my blessing, I think I heard the first blessing was that the president got COVID on October 1st, not only the Mid-Autumn Festival, the full moon, the harvest moon, but also China's National Day. Uh, and someone on Twitter speculated, like, is this an attempt? Can we consider this an attempt by the Chinese government to assassinate the president? If yes. only. Yes, yes. If only they were that clever that they could give him COVID on National Day, they, but they're not. That's what Miles Guo said as part of our beat Miles Guo alert. But honestly, China probably doesn't even want to assassinate him because he's also deep in the pockets of big China and they have too many capitalistic ties intertwined between the two of them. And this whole pretending like they don't like each other situation is clearly just foreplay for whatever the hell they want to do next. <laughs> it's just a game for them. Clearly. The, the big clearly. the big wet president is personally ushering in the Chinese century, so I'm sure they want to just leave him and let him do his thing. <laughs> Anyways. Joey, give us our well, blessing. Anyways, give us our my blessing. blessing. My blessing of the week is that Borat 2 is coming. <laughs> A movie that we truly deserve. The sequel to 2006 smash hit film Borat is finally upon us. Here's, it is here's called yes. Here I am. from <laughs> journalist Dolly G. <laughs> Can we appreciate how good uh, Dolly G outfit is, by the way? This is me as Dolly G. Halloween spooky season. I spent the entire night season. asking people what they think about the euthanasia. <laughs> euthanasia. <laughs> the, the new Borat film oh, is Borat called too. Borat Subsequent Movie Film Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit, Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Mm. It's coming out October 23rd right in time for our cursed election and reportedly the original title was borat gift of pornographic monkey to vice premier mikhail prince to make benefit recently diminished nation of kazakhstan uh so i cannot personally wait to see the pornographic monkey delivered to our vice president in horny jail so yes borat to i can't even imagine what that's going to be like in 2020 I mean, so many things that were unkosher about it. Now, I guess we'll see. <laughs> well, I rewatched it recently, and like you know, it's it still goes. Like it's still great. Hmm, Joey, I think you are cutting out a bit. 
But boo! Fuck the computer! We'll do, I'll fuck give computer. us computer. Ah. <laughs> so I'll give us our final blessing. I can hear you a little bit. <laughs> Internet, can you hear me? I'm saying you sound fuck a computer. <laughs> our final blessing is a literal blessing, a blessing coming straight from El Papa himself. The Pope, Pope Francis, has declared that capitalism is bad. Tell it to the believers. Him, oh, you can't really see that. <laughs> Tell him, young Pope. <laughs> Pope Francis says capitalism is bad. He denounces what he describes as this dogma of neoliberal faith that resorts yes, to the Pope. magical theories of spillover or trickle. There yes, you have Pope. it. The Pope has shot down your trickle down economic theory. It does not work. Yes, it Pope. only makes rich people richer. Yes, Pope. And of course, he also put social media in the hole, saying social aggression has found unparalleled room for expansion through computers and mobile devices. So yes, Pope. On that note, yes, Pope. it is time to log off. <laughs> yes, we all log off now. Am I a Catholic now? Did I just get colonized by the Catholics? So here's our blessing. And now that our show is blessed, we can welcome on JS onto the show. So stay tuned. His interview is coming right up. JS, welcome on to Plum Radio. JS is a writer and he writes about tech and actually used to be a tech worker. JS was born in Hong Kong and grew up in Beijing and worked for Microsoft here in the US. And he recently wrote this article for Foreign Policy called Big Tech Embraces New Cold War Nationalism. So JS, thank you for joining us on Plum Radio. We're super excited to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this discussion. So I really wanted to start with this article that uh, we read in Foreign Policy about this new Cold War nationalism. What does that mean? What is this new Cold War? The Cold War has been, in a way, inevitable given the rise of Chinese tech. When you have this rising power threatening the existing dominant power, there's bound to be some kind of conflict. Now, how that conflict happens is obviously to be determined. But with Trump and Xi Jinping at the head of these, the path they've chosen is to really flare up nationalism on both sides and pit the people of each of their countries really against each other. No, I think some people may argue that the Cold War hasn't ever stopped really between China and Russia, China and the US. But in this new Cold War, for you, when did that first start? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think this is really a, a great way to tie into sort of this concept that people have been talking about, the, the splinter net. And that to me was something that, that I experienced growing up in Beijing as a teenager, seeing some of my favorite services like Facebook and Google, at least at the time, being blocked off from the internet in Beijing and then having to like hack my way through VPNs to figure out how to use it. I love this term, the splinternet. Can you recall the moment in which the internet started becoming the splinternet? Yeah, I mean, I think as someone who grew up in Beijing, it really always almost felt like the splinternet to me, at least as soon as the Great Firewall of China sort of came about. You know, I remember having to use a VPN basically to access one half of the internet and then having sort of free access to the other half, the Chinese half. I've always told people that we live in a world of two internets unless you have the means and technological savviness to get over that firewall. You really have no idea what's happening on that other side. But this wasn't always true. I think a lot of people forgot that there was a period of time where Google was in China, it was accessible there, and it wasn't blocked. Do you remember when that changed? Yeah, I mean, I think 2009 or maybe 2008, sort of around those years, specifically in response to sort of political sensitivity around some reporting that was happening in Tibet, this transformation of the internet really from that point where we started seeing China blocking off Facebook, Twitter, Google, to today, 2020, where we have Mike Pompeo declaring the Clean Network Project and, and effectively trying to mirror what China did back in 2009-10 when they blocked these Western services. Back in the early 2000s, the internet was sort of seen as kind of this natural tool to counter authoritarian governments. There was this belief that as long as you kind of let the internet loose in whatever country, authoritarianism is bound to go away. And there's been this dramatic transformation of this belief to now today where we think of 
the internet really as a tool of authoritarianism, you know, looking at the way surveillance is used in places like Xinjiang, increasingly in Hong Kong, and sort of broadly this idea of the internet as a means of, of social control, which one of the most salient examples is in China. But, you know, we, we really see that throughout the internet, both in the East and West. And so you have this shift from in the early 2000s, people calling the Arab Spring movement as a Facebook catalyzed movement, or you have moments where Clinton, where he talked about controlling the internet is like trying to pin jello to the wall and really laughing at any attempts to sort of control that to now this world where we have a very different perception of the relationship between the internet and uh, authoritarianism. What is this clean network internet that Mike Pompeo is trying to create? And where do you see the parallels with what the US is trying to do and what China has done? To touch on what the clean network is, the idea is to, as Mike Pompeo puts it, is really to protect American assets from, and I'm quoting from the article here, aggressive intrusions by malign actors such as the Chinese Communist Party. But really, in my analysis of it, I would almost sort of portray it as this new program that really is dressed up as a national security policy, when in effect, it is very much a protectionist policy from an economic standpoint as well. Can you elaborate on that? To sort of speak to this topic, it might be worthwhile going back to sort of this history of the Great Firewall in China. Back in 2009, the Great Firewall of China was really berated as kind of a protectionist policy in this world where, you know, the expectation is really to believe in free markets. And it was also, you know, obviously berated for its potential for human right type violations. And so we went from this world of China putting up the Great Firewall to effectively insulate their tech sector to now when China is becoming this global force in the tech sector, we see the U.S. basically doing effectively the same thing, but this time under the guise of national security. Do you think that on the Chinese side, did they start becoming more protectionist of their internet for the sake of controlling press? Or do you think that it was more from an economic incentive? It's hard to really know, but I, I do think that both those reasons are probably why. The catalyst of it was really the kind of exposure that the, the unrest in Tibet was having on these platforms. And that really helped push the CCP in, into blocking a lot of these now very popular platforms. But I think that the value of the Great Firewall as this protectionist measure was also crucial. It was this outright rejection of the standards of globalization back in the late 2000s. Mm -hmm. What do you think is loss in this process of creating a firewall for Chinese citizens specifically? If an application like WeChat gets banned, which, you know, supposedly is set to happen. Um, Every other day it changes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that will have really deep consequences for especially the Chinese diaspora. It might be worth saying that I, I'm not on WeChat in a very deep way, because when I go back to China, I'm kind of that useless person who runs around trying to pay people with, with actual money and <laughs> no one wants to take it. Um, but that's because I, I don't really want to connect my WeChat account to any identity that I have. And um, What are you afraid of? Like, what's the risk? Um, I mean, you know, as someone who is writing quite critically about China in some cases, especially in tech... I think maybe somewhere down the line with all the data that they're just storing in the data centers, it might come back and bite me, depending on sort of how draconian their policies end up getting. One thing I find more and more funny, like as time goes on, is just like how much more mad people are when you bring cash somewhere. It's like previously, it was like, oh, yeah, we have cash. But now it's just like, you want me to go get cash? <laughs> it's yeah. the extent to which online payments are now the norm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, your question about like, what are you afraid of? I think that's that, that's a great question and really, I think, demonstrates this contrast between kind of our stereotype of, of Silicon Valley and, you know, this idea that Silicon Valley is this progressive and, and highly liberal space. Up until 2013, I think that was, you know, when, when the Snowden incident happened, that was really the perception. And now we're really starting to see this turn among Silicon Valley companies to siding with the military, siding with the government, to sort of taking on more contracts with them. And so I think there's this really interesting dynamic with Silicon Valley and sort of being really clever about the language of freedom, the language of being this open platform and being able to then take over the global internet in that way. The internet has been the perfect platform for these companies because it is kind of this perfect medium for free marketism. 
you know, where transactions are instantaneous and there are no, with the exception of the Great Firewall of China, I, I guess, there are no borders really. Throughout the past several decades, these tech giants have really portrayed themselves as these champions for progressive values. You know, I think in 2013, Mark Zuckerberg even declared that the internet was itself a human right. Mm -hmm. And Google, obviously, it's this kind of poster child for being progressive and liberal and, and whatnot. And their old slogan of don't be evil really captures that. And so it's really interesting how these companies, how Silicon Valley has been able to take advantage of this rhetoric to go global. It's now interesting to see this turn happen where they are starting to sort of work more closely with the military. They are, in some cases, just pledging loyalty to like the U.S. government and trying to play down their ties with specifically China. This shift of Silicon Valley's attitude really maps quite well onto this previous narrative I had talked about of the Internet as a tool to counter authoritarianism to then a tool of authoritarianism. You know, as you mentioned, the previous line from Silicon Valley was like, yeah, a free and open internet is essential to democracy, right? And all these things. And then I think these tech companies realized that like a free and open internet was their business model in the sense that the more that was being shared out there on the internet, the more information that people were putting out there, the more money they made, right? And so I wonder like at what point did they realize that getting people to put their data out there and then profiting off that data? Like at what point did they just realize like, oh, this is our business model and, and now we just have to lean into this so that we can continue to make all this money? Yeah. I mean, I, I, to some extent, I, I do think that that level of clarity was really around for a long time with a lot of these companies. In the early like 2010s, Facebook had this service where I think Facebook owns the domain internet.org and, and, they, and they, they really yeah, are that's trying right. to... Uh-huh. Yeah, they're really trying to push this idea that like, you know, the internet is 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 this fundamental thing that everyone deserves to be a part of. Of course, ignoring the fact that most significant infrastructure of the internet is US dominated, is in English, is all these things, especially among Silicon Valley's leadership, there was this level of clarity for a long time and it was weaponized. This was exactly the tactic that they took to slip into foreign countries, to avoid regulation in these foreign countries, create these new digital markets and then monopolize those markets. And so there was never really this chance for, with the exception of China, really, there wasn't really this chance for other tech hubs to really develop and to compete in any serious way. Yeah. And I think you saw that like in India, for instance, where Facebook was talking about, oh, internet.org, and we really want to give people in India access to the internet. It ended up being paired with a program called like Free Basics, right? Which was like, mm. you can access Facebook for free. That's and it. so if you, have, if you have a mobile phone, if you're now on the internet, uh, you can use Facebook as much as you want, right? Mm -hmm. But then what happens when Facebook is the only thing that you see right now in a lot of places when people are buying a mobile phone for the first time, you know, they'll have Facebook set up for them at the store. And then when you're logging onto your phone for the first time, you just see Facebook and that's what you think of as the internet. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how companies like Facebook took this idea of like, oh, internet as a human right, free expression as a human right, but it was actually just funneling people into their services. Yeah. And to add on to that, like, it's also worth talking about the creation of the internet and how sort of the initial funding for it was also from the U.S. military. And so there are these deep connections with the U.S. government, with U.S. empire building that, that comes along with the internet itself. I love this concept of weaponizing the internet, right? Like when you look at where the testing grounds are for new algorithms, like for Facebook, for Google, a lot of people don't realize that they get tested in the Philippines, right? Because mm -hmm. the market is English speaking, because they're former U.S. colony, because of, you know, the constant U.S. military presence in that area just makes it easier for it to be an area for the U.S. to do a lot of just underhanded work. So going into this, like weaponizing the internet in 2016, when the last election happened, something that I saw from the newsroom point of view is how the engagement around viral internet content like Facebook and, and you know, posts specifically about Donald Trump for media makers, it just generated so much traction, so, so, so much. And this fueled a machine that just desired more views, more ads, more reactions, right? And to some degree, I, as a journalist, as a digital journalist, really wish that there were some checks and balances in the way that the internet satisfies these just very sensory experiences of being triggered, right? And 
If we don't in some way regulate our internet, how do we make sure that people aren't just getting content that is going to be the most sensational, right? And that's something I think a lot about, you know, when I go back and forth between China and the US having, you know, lived in both sides of the world, just like yourself. I feel that the crazy engagement we got around the 2016 Trump election would not be something that would pass the Chinese censors, for example, because it was almost, it brought too much attention to a certain topic. There were even moments when Trump was first elected in which the Chinese internet then moderated people's responses to Trump, right? Like when they were making fun of him a little too much, they were like, oh, wait, we should maybe tamp down on this. Is there a way to balance this, to balance our desire for viral content that may just be false information and also just giving people access to free speech? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a, the million dollar question in a way. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, yeah, I, I guess. Um, a multi-billion dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> How many billions of dollars are involved in this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't say I, I'm kind of the expert in terms of thinking of how to sort of strike this balance between free speech and mitigating against disinformation and this desire for things to go viral. But I, I guess four years after the election, just over the summer, there was the antitrust hearing in tech. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really this watershed moment for the tech industry in, in, in realizing some of these problems that you're talking about. The, the really mm -hmm. interesting thing that I noticed about when I was listening to the antitrust hearing was, was actually specifically how these tech companies and how Republicans were using nationalism as a way to allow these tech companies to take back power. Yeah, You have people like Mark Zuckerberg effectively saying things like, you can't regulate us, otherwise China will win. Mm -hmm. You have this use of nationalism to basically justify the kind of monopolistic power that tech companies have. I think this is exactly one of the key uses of nationalism in the tech industry, which is to create this perception of emergency and to really take back power in that way. Mm -hmm. It's actually the language and the even the term weaponizing the internet is so similar to the way the U.S. justifies going to actual physical war in other countries, right? Like in the way that the U.S. justifies overthrowing dictatorships or what they claim as dictatorships in Central and Latin America, mm -hmm. right? Like this is for the sake of safety. This is for the sake of protecting us against you know, insert whoever the enemy is today, it's China. Mm -hmm. But the internet is such a nebulous, nebulous concept. How can your average everyday, you know, let's start with American, how can your average everyday American start to think a little bit deeper about the implications of this new Cold War? I think what the Trump election showed was that this previous position of what people have been calling sort of the neoliberal period, this position is actually no longer sustainable. If I were to sort of try to draw out what like sort of the mental model of, of how I see this going is that I see probably the majority of people kind of in this liberal centrist position and Trump and a lot of the alt-right are working quite hard to pull people over to sort of the category of right wing. They are using rhetoric that is in a way quite similar to what leftists are using. Mm -hmm. And so we have the leftists and folks like Bernie Sanders who are also calling out some of these fundamental failures in neoliberalism, in sort of the way things have been run, trying to empower workers and trying to pull people to the left. This position of being the centrist, the contradictions are just too much and it's no longer going to hold. And so we have this bifurcation of people shifting over to the right and people shifting over to the left. I think the work moving forward is that people on the left, people who are trying to push for a more progressive agenda, needs to make the case that the enemy is actually the other workers in other countries. Those workers are not the people who stole your jobs, but rather the problem is the system itself. The system of capitalism is no longer sustainable. And, you know, that's exactly what we hear from the right wing. You know, this is why Trump's xenophobic rhetoric has really been one of his defining points in, in, in sort of his presidency with built the wall to the Muslim registry to now all the stuff with China. It's always about the creation of an enemy in order to justify the failures that are happening domestically. JS, I feel like you were in a pretty interesting position, you know, having grown up in China and then working in the US for a big American tech company. Would you say that when you first started working in tech, was it something that you were excited about? And, you know, when did the rose tinted glasses fall off for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I was hired into Microsoft right out of undergrad. Once you get a job, it's kind of just like, wow, I have money to go eat at that restaurant now. Right, right, right. Nice <laughs> uh, the other aspect for mm-hmm. me was that I was part of the group that just did not win the H1P lottery again and again. And so I, I needed a company who was going to be able to sponsor my green card. And for folks who don't know what the H-1B visa is, do you mind just briefly telling us? Yeah, I mean, it's it's in short a visa type that allows foreign workers to work in the U.S. And it has to be, I think it has to be approved by a company or has to be under a company. And by the time you were working for Microsoft, you know, the Great Firewall was already in existence. Mm -hmm. What was that experience now being on the other side of the firewall and, you know, being part of a U.S. tech company? I guess for me, I mean... Just because growing up in Beijing, I was so often on VPNs and looking at uh, and, you know, using Google and Facebook or or whatever, coming to the U.S. just was like a little bit more convenient in terms of how I use the Internet. I mean, early on when when WeChat was released, that was kind of the main way that I I stayed connected with my family, who at the time were still living in Beijing and as well as friends that I had made growing up there. And, you know, in your time working for Microsoft, when did you feel like your awareness of tech and your awareness of this, you know, appropriating the internet and technology as a weapon started to manifest? Yeah. So for me, there was an open letter. I think it was originally by some Microsoft interns to call for the cancellation of an ICE contract. That was a pretty important moment for me in understanding the kind of impact that I could take within my workplace. Before that, in 2017, there was this other moment where Facebook software engineers and program managers and sort of this white collar tier of of software engineers in Facebook were essentially helping cafeteria workers in their union drive. And that to me was also this other moment of really thinking flexibly about the the tech worker and, and thinking about how the tech worker identity can actually be used in a constructive way to push back on some of these horrible decisions or nationalistic decisions um, or just straight up unethical decisions that these big tech companies are doing. Yeah, because I, you know, I think a lot of the momentum being brought forward, right, about this industry needs to change, right? We need to we need to regulate the way um, Google and Facebook have so much power and information over us. So much of it actually comes from people who worked in tech, like you and Joey, because for people on the outside, they're consumers, right? They're the product themselves. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's always so interesting to hear like the moments in which both of you, you know, saw something different happening in this world, in this industry. And it makes me wonder, like now we're talking about really serious issues of like this new Cold War, Mm -hmm. right? And a new Cold War that we're not taking physical weapons to. It's about information. It's about surveillance. It's about data, right? Mm -hmm. Who can keep these systems accountable? The power may be in the hands of tech workers themselves or former tech workers who understand what's happening with the system. As we enter this new cold war, it's clearly not going anywhere, right? Trump and Biden, regardless of who wins, they have similar rhetoric in these campaigns of nationalism. How can we hold these companies accountable? Yeah, I mean, so I I guess I'll speak from the perspective of a tech worker and, and kind of why I think the tech worker as this identity has a lot of potential. One event that I, I kind of want to move to is the anti-996 movement that happened in China back in 2019. For those who are not familiar with it, the anti-996 movement was effectively this this major uprising of tech workers in China who were subjected to the 996 schedule, which is basically working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. For this particular narrative, I think it's important to recognize that this movement was happening while the Amazon employees for climate justice were demanding climate justice at Amazon. This was happening just a few months after the Google walkout in late 2018. This was happening, you know, really in in this moment where tech worker organizing blew up in the U.S. And so in 2019, we start to see kind of a parallel happening in China. You know, obviously there are many differences. For one, the entire movement was centered around GitHub and Slack. And GitHub was really the platform in which they found a lot of the other tech workers who were having similar grievances over 996. And it was the way of really going public with their grievances. At least as far as I know, this particular online mobilization was also the largest online mobilization by tech workers ever in terms of the number of engagements. If you guys are familiar with GitHub, this repo on GitHub blew up to more than 200,000 stars, or we can kind of think of that as like 
mm-hmm. bookmarks or whatever. Could you just explain really quickly what GitHub is for those who might not know? Yeah. GitHub is, maybe you can think of it as like a Word doc for, for software engineers, but I guess, I guess it does a little bit more. It's sort of a way to host coding projects and a way to sort of collaborate on it through this application called Git. What's unique about it in this particular case is that it's being used pretty much globally. It is by far the biggest code sharing platform, and it's also owned by Microsoft. <laughs> and so there, there are a lot of <laughs> ways that, that people have been integrating GitHub with various Microsoft services. And effectively, it sort of had a few components to it. First, it hosted a blacklist and a whitelist of companies. Using an open source method, we're able to categorize different, different tech companies in China into either a blacklist or the whitelist, depending on their work schedules. The other part that I thought was really interesting about this project was that it also contained a anti-996 license. And that was a license that could then be applied to GitHub projects, kind of in like the fashion of open source licenses to essentially enforce, or at least on the license, say that people using this project must adhere to Chinese labor laws, if not um, international labor laws or whatever. What I thought was also really interesting about this GitHub project, which by the way, is called the 996.ICU project. ICU because the idea is that they worked so hard that they ended up in the ICU. But uh, yeah, (laughs) the other part I thought was really interesting was that for the first bit of time when they released the repo on the internet, the issues section on the GitHub project blew up with Chinese tech workers across companies, across cities in China. It blew up with them talking about their experiences in their workplaces, sharing tactics, sort of sharing grievances. And it became this space where tech workers could talk about their, their workplace conditions in China, that is. And, um, you know, immediately once this went viral on GitHub, it was picked up on Weibo and effectively went viral on the Chinese internet. Some of the biggest publications in China or media companies in China reporting on it. And there was this nationwide reckoning of white collar tech work. What was the result of more people started learning about this? What happened? Did censors then react to it? Um, How did the public respond? And were there actual changes? Yeah. I guess it might be interesting to start with how the bosses responded because the bosses had, mm-hmm. had, had some pretty funny responses or, I mean, responses that you would probably expect. So, you know, you had Jack Ma saying things like, you should feel privileged to work 996. You know, I think you had mm-hmm. the CEO of JD.com saying like, you know, slackers are not my brother. And, and oh, yeah. yeah, just really, a really crazy set of responses from the bosses. But I, I guess, you know, you would expect that in a sense. I guess the question of whether or not we saw any results, it's quite hard to say. I, I think I saw a report a few months ago. So this was more than a year after the 996 movement, the anti-996 movement. I saw a report from Alibaba saying that at least on paper, they're going to be abandoning 996 working hours. So maybe that to some extent mm-hmm. was an output of it. But one of the things that I would say was definitely a win was that it was able to ignite this conversation among white collar workers in China about workplace conditions. And from the perspective of tech capital in China, this is not a good thing. And so right after it went viral, the people who are most guilty of 996, like Tencent and Alibaba, they started censoring the GitHub URL to try to prevent people from going to it. Obviously, because GitHub is, you know, is not blocked in China, and has sort of different routing mechanisms where you can still land on that page if you don't go to the exact URL, it was quite hard to censor. But from my perspective, as well as, you know, kind of speaking with other organizers at Microsoft, my worry was that either the Chinese government or these tech companies were somehow going to try to pressure Microsoft to effectively ban the repos or to tell Microsoft to pull the repo. What we ended up doing within Microsoft was to write up a, effectively a letter to, to say to our leadership that you know, we absolutely want this repo to remain open, to remain uncensored for the anti-996 movement. And we invited our coworkers at GitHub, as well as other coworkers at Microsoft to sign on to kind of show support. We ended up actually opening it to any tech worker around the world as kind of this gesture to really show solidarity with the uh, anti-996 movement. And it was it was really cool to kind of just see the the kinds of responses people had People were filling out the issues page with like snippets of the international, like the song, and um, mm-hmm. and were were sharing comments about each other's working conditions, um, sharing how in some cases in Silicon Valley, you know, you're also expected to work really hard and work really ridiculous hours, and so kind of just exchanging notes at this global level around this identity of the tech worker. 
You know, I think 996 is such a really interesting example of cross-Pacific tech solidarity, right? You know, where folks at Microsoft and GitHub were able to help keep the anti-996 movement going by using their power and using their leverage and their position as tech workers. And one of the things I, I find really interesting about what we're calling the splinter net, right, is that like while we're in two different internets and in two different worlds, you know, the Chinese internet and the American internet have learned a lot from each other, whether it's, you know, the tech industry now relying on sort of like this engagement and advertising loop to drive profits or the explosion of the gig worker economy to building surveillance and weapons technology. And so I'm curious for, for folks who might be caught in the diaspora, what else can we do to build more solidarity across the ocean? That's also a really, really great and, and I think maybe difficult question. One sort of group of people that, I, that I'm quite interested in figuring out how to work more closely with is Chinese international students who come to the U.S. I think there's something like 300,000 international students who come to the U.S. every year. I mean, that, that, that number is probably way off this year, <laughs> given 2020. Mm -hmm. But um, the majority of, of that 300,000 does end up going back to China. You know, when they go back, that's definitely a force to reckon with in Chinese society. And, and so I think being able to sort of have more dialogue with this group is crucial, especially with the sort of tit for tat kind of retaliations that's been happening around like Chinese students, Chinese student visas and ice bands and, you know, whatever. This is also a group that's feeling increasingly trapped between these two countries and sort of being able to push for a more internationalist kind of perspective among these students, I think, is, is crucial. The other thing that I would say around this idea of international solidarity is, you know, I think you had it right on, Joey. I think that this is really a way to, to sort of think past this kind of nationalist rhetoric that we're seeing in tech. I've given some examples of what these tech executives in the U.S. have said, sort of pinning the blame on China or saying, you know, we have to do this, otherwise China will catch up. But you have the same kind of rhetoric happening in, in China among Chinese tech executives, similarly trying to motivate their employees one instant that jumps to mind is the Huawei CEO who has this military background and after being put on this entity list that prohibits them from using American technology, he kind of went into this military mode and, and said, you know, this is not peacetime anymore. He's saying in an interview, we have to take this opportunity to prevent our employees from slacking off. So really this... Oh, no. um, <laughs> It's just it's just so ridiculous, right? Because the way they're like using wartime rhetoric and also just abusing labor simultaneously. It's its truly incredible. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I, I think this instance of this really small moment of solidarity around 996, it's small. And at the end of the day, I don't know how much impact it made, but I, I think moments like those are increasingly going to be super important, you know, where we have tech workers on both sides being able to talk to each other, being able to realize that this kind of nationalistic rhetoric that they're seeing from their bosses, from, from their government, it's actually a trick. It's actually a way to get them into working longer hours. It's a way to make employees okay with less regulations. You know, it's a way to make employees okay with seeing monopolistic behavior. So you're doing it for your country. Right, exactly. You know, and the other thing on this point of international solidarity is that tech capital is, is extremely, extremely intertwined with, with each other across the U.S. and China. One example that really jumps to mind for me is watching this the really amazing um, Uber and Lyft drivers movement happen over the past year, year and a half, and seeing them actually push back on their employees in a really effective and really militant way. But what a lot of people don't actually know is that the Uber counterpart in China, Didi, Didi drivers are also going through a similar process where they are striking, they are pushing back on Didi's algorithm, and they are trying to push for better working conditions. And what's really striking to me is that the capital between Didi and Uber are intertwined. When Uber left the Chinese market, I think in 2016, they ended up purchasing a 20% stake, or I think maybe a little less than a 20% stake in Didi. So I think for one, we should be thinking of not just targeting Didi or Uber, but targeting the capitalists of the ride hail industry. And that's precisely because their capital is so intertwined. I mean, the other funny thing is that Didi, even before Uber invested in them, they invested $100 million in Lyft. Mm -hmm. and, and Alibaba, who, <laughs> Alibaba, who owns one of the biggest delivery services in China, they also invested in Lyft. It feels like the situation where the tech capitalists are kind of in cahoots while the politicians are drumming up nationalism and, and trying to tell the people that they're actually enemies of each other. And so, you know, I think this is really the basis for why we need this kind of solidarity between tech work, really at every level. 
going off exactly what you said, I think that it definitely brings us to a very current event of this back and forth TikTok ban and shifting whoever gets to hold, you know, the bag of money between Chinese investors or, you know, is it going to be Oracle? Is it going to be Microsoft? Is it going to be Walmart? It seems like every major corporation around the world is getting their hands involved in this TikTok situation, which is, you know, another way in which we're seeing this Cold War manifest itself. So what do you make Mm -hmm. of this TikTok fiasco and how do we see beyond the facade of this back and forth? What's important to note about the TikTok case or the TikTok ban is that Trump and Pompeo and his administration of China Hawks are basically using the pretense of national security as a justification for this ban. But in reality, you know, if we if we look at the way the deal played out, we can actually see that this is really more rhetoric than it is real. Trump wants to have this dramatic episode where he looks really tough on China mm-hmm. without actually having to do the work of ensuring better privacy policies or data sovereignty or you know or w- whatever data requirements um, would actually make the service a safer platform. You know, I think looking at the way the Walmart bid versus the Microsoft bid played out is actually really illustrative of this point. Microsoft was actually the first player to bid on TikTok. When they did, they came out pretty strongly saying that Microsoft would have made significant changes to ensure that TikTok would meet the highest standards of security, privacy, online safety, and combating disinformation. And to ByteDance, that was just unacceptable. They saw that and they were like, nope, you know, we can't, we can't go this direction. They basically ended up going with the Oracle bid, who at least at the time didn't have any language of that sort. It's just so nuts and and comedic how it all played out because when Oracle made the bid, they ended up going with this new structure where TikTok wasn't going to be bought. It was, they were going to create this new entity, TikTok Global, of which Oracle and Walmart, for whatever reason, is going to be only a a 20% owner of. We have this case where Trump is really not getting any of the things that he said he wanted to see, which was national security measures in place and the selling of TikTok. But he he went ahead and gave this new arrangement his blessing anyways. My read on that is that he effectively wants to create this sense of emergency to look strong on China mm-hmm. ahead of the elections. Yeah. And all of this, you know, of course, is another aspect of this new Cold War that's all taking place on the internet. And so maybe to wrap us up, I would love to hear your thoughts on like, who are the people who are going to be most vulnerable? And who's got the most to lose in this new Cold War? I mean, one group is really anyone who sort of falls in the in-betweens of the U.S. and China. And so, you know, whether that's Chinese students who are in the U.S. or even Chinese tech workers, if we're talking about the quote-unquote tech cold war. But I would say another really big loser is potentially the workers who are going to be the biggest losers when the government and when executives start to apply these nationalist rhetoric onto their employees. Delivery workers in China Similarly, in the U.S., I think it might be possible to see even worse conditions for these groups as executives try to escape regulation, try to sweep up even more monopolistic power in calling China the enemy. JS, for people who want to follow your work, how can they follow you? Where can people find your writing? Follow me on Twitter, and that's just OrganizeJS. Organize spelt the American way. Awesome. Thank you so much, JS. Thank you for sitting down chatting with us today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I think it was a very, very interesting discussion. You know what JS is saying about this new tech cold war, I think you can see it escalating more and more with each day, especially with Trump. You know, he's a protectionist kind of man. You know, he's all about bringing jobs back to the U.S. Yeah. And uh, as of today, publication day, Wednesday the 7th, yesterday, the Trump administration announced a sweeping changes to the H-1B program. So speaking of the tech workers who might get caught in the shuffle, these new changes include drastic reductions in visa quotas and much more stringent education requirements which are obviously going to affect folks in the tech industry a ton. Tons of immigrant tech workers, especially Chinese-American folks, Indian-American folks. Um, And the effect of that is that a lot of them might end up having to leave the country. So this Cold War continues to escalate. Yeah. And, you know, the tech industry actually gets most of these H-1Bs. So might this mean more jobs for Americans? Or does this mean just talent drain for Silicon Valley? 
optimistic. Me, the, my optimistic side actually hopes that this means less foreign worker exploitation because people are really like held by the balls if they got that H-1B visa. It's like dance, monkey, dance. Yeah. And you have to be tied to whatever the company wants you to do, be it build a drone to invade your home country or, you know, make more advertising algorithms to exploit the people around you. TBD, if this H-1B gets replaced with something else or something similar, which often happens. Yeah, but pessimistic me feels like this is just a way of tightening the screws on folks that the administration just doesn't want to be here. You know, the H-1B program, I think, was a bridge to more permanent residency or citizenship status for a lot of these folks, right? So um, for folks who did end up winning the H-1B lottery and H-1B visas were still hard to get from there, that was a stepping stone to a green card or an application for citizenship. Um, And now, um, you know, with this program getting overhauled, a lot of folks might have to leave the country. So we'll see. Definitely the H-1B program was being abused in certain ways, but, you know, I can't help but think about all of the uh, folks and, and colleagues that people have who are from places like China and India who are now potentially looking at having to go home and potentially looking at having their existence here tampered with in as many other ways as this administration can come up with. Yeah, so write to us, let us know what you think. We read your listener questions every week on our Monday Instagram Live. You can email us at hi at plumradio.com. Joey and I promise we read every single letter that you guys send. Or you can DM us on Instagram at listen to Plum Radio. And if you, ha- if you aren't already, make sure you're following us there. And if you like our show, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts because it really helps us reach new audiences. Yeah, leave us a five-star review and tell us how much you love our radio voices. We love to hear that. (laughs) My radio voice. (laughs) (laughs) If you've been listening to our show for a while, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are a listener-supported show. uh, And so you can become a member of our Plum Posse on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash plumradio for just $5 a month or $50 a year. We now offer an annual subscriptions which help us save a ton on uh on credit card fees by the way uh you can become a member and get exclusive invites to our viewing parties get early screenings of all the other stuff that we're working on and support independent media because uh you know these days it's so important to support independent media absolutely and our show plum radio is made by yours truly dolly lee and i'm joey and we'll see you guys next week on monday instagram live Bye, y'all. Bye. Internet? Hey, this is, hey, listen, this is really important. Fuck computers.